Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 27, verses 1 through 6. Then he called his twelve disciples together and gave them power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And he said unto them, Take nothing for your journey, neither staves nor script, neither bread, neither money, neither have two coats apiece. And whosoever house ye enter into, there abide, and thence depart. And whosoever will not receive you, when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet, for a testimony against them. And they departed, and went through the towns, preaching the gospel, and healing everywhere. Burkett notes, We heard before, chapter 613, of our Savior's choosing his twelve disciples and their several names. They were first chosen disciples to be with Christ, to learn of him, and to be instructed by him, and to be witnesses of what he said and did. Now, after some time thus spent in preparing and outfitting them for public service, our Savior sends them forth to preach the gospel, and gives them a power to confirm their doctrine by miracles. Observe here one, the person that sends the apostles forth to preach the gospel, it is Christ himself. Learn, thence, that none ought to take upon themselves the office of preaching or any other ministerial function of the church till thereunto called by Christ himself. The apostles were called by Christ and immediately sent forth by himself. The ministers of the gospel are now called immediately and receive authority from Christ by the hand of the governors of the church. Observe, too, the power given to the apostles by our Savior to work miracles for confirming that doctrine which they preached. He gave them power over unclean spirits, etc. Now this miraculous power given to the apostles was necessary partly to procure reverence to their persons, being poor and unlearned men, but principally to gain credit and authority to their doctrine. For the doctrine of faith in the Messiah as now come, and exhibited in the flesh, being a strange and new doctrine to the Jews, the truth and certainty of it was to be extraordinarily ratified by miracles, which are the broad seal of heaven, to testify that such doctrine comes from God. Observe 3. The charge here given by Christ to his disciples at the time of their sending forth, and this is threefold. First, touching their preparation for the journey. He forbids them to take much care or to spend much time in furnishing themselves with victuals, money, or clothes, because they were to finish their journey speedily and return again to Christ their Master. This command of our Savior to his apostles not to encumber themselves when going forth to preach the gospel teaches his ministers their duty to free themselves as much as possibly they can from worldly encumbrances which may hinder them in their ministerial services. 2 Timothy 2, 4 no man that warreth entangle himself with the affairs of this life. Secondly, touching their lodging in their journey, Christ advises them not to change it during their stay in one place, but into whatsoever house they entered, they should there continue till they departed out of the place, so that they might avoid all show of lightness and inconstancy and testify all gravity and staidness in their behavior this being a special mean to gain reverence to their persons and authority to their doctrine. Thirdly, Christ gives a special charge to his apostles concerning their carriage towards such as should refuse to give entertainment to them and their doctrine. 
They were to denounce the judgments of God against such contemners by shaking off the dust of their feet for a testimony against them. This action was emblematical, signifying that Almighty God would in like manner shake them off as the vilest dust. For wherever the word is preached, it is for a testimony, either a testimony for or against the people. For if the dust of a minister's feet while alive and the ashes of his grave when dead do bear witness against the despisers of his gospel, their sermons much more. Verses 7 through 9. Now Herod, the Tetrarch, heard of all that was done by him, and he was perplexed, because that it was said of him, of some, that John was risen from the dead, and of some, that Elijah had appeared, and of others, that one of the old prophets was risen again. And Herod said, John have I beheaded, but who is this of whom I hear such things? And he desired to see him. Burkett notes, The history of the Holy Baptist's beheading by Herod is briefly here hinted at by St. Luke, but not so largely set forth by him as we find it by St. Matthew, chapter 14, and St. Mark, chapter 6. See the notes there. That which St. Luke takes particular notice of is that great perplexity of mind which Herod's guilty conscience did occasion. He had murdered John, and now was afraid his ghost haunted him. Herod was perplexed. Learn hence that guilt is naturally troublesome and uneasy. It disturbs the peace and serenity of the mind, and it fills the soul with storms and thunder. Guilt is always full of fear. Everything affrights the guilty. A bad man is a terror to himself and needs no farther disquietment than what his own guilty conscience doth occasion him. Verses 10 and 11. And the apostles, when they were returned, told him all that they had done. And he took them and went aside privately into a desert place belonging to a city called Bethesda. And the people, when they knew of it, followed him. And he received them and spake unto them of the kingdom of God and healed them that had need of healing. Burkett notes, St. Luke here gives a short account of several material passages, as one concerning the apostles' return to Christ after their mission and sending forth. They acquaint their master how they had executed their office and discharged the trust he had reposed in them. Two, he withdraws privately into a desert place from the multitude, that he might enjoy himself and his disciples. But there the people find him out and flock after him. And Christ whose meat it was by day and sleep by night to do good, embraces the opportunity, bestowing upon their souls instruction, reproof, and counsel, upon their bodies, health and healing, teaching us by the example to mix spiritual alms with bodily relief. We must be in fee with the body sometimes that we may come at the soul. Happy is that Christian whom God hath made both able and willing to intermix spiritual alms with corporal and to know how to feed two at once, soul and body both. This is the duty of all, but especially of spiritual persons. The Lord gives us wisdom and grace to manage it to advantage. Verses 12 through 17. And when the day began to wear away, then came the twelve and said unto him, Send the multitude away, that they may go into the towns and country round about and lodge and get victuals. For we are here in a desert place. But he said unto them, Give ye them to eat. And they said, We have no more but five loaves and two fishes, except we should go and buy meat for all this people. For they were about five thousand men. And he said to his disciples, Make them sit down by fifty in a company. 
and they did so, and made them all sit down. Then he took the five loaves and the two fishes, and looking up to heaven, he blessed them, and brake, and gave to the disciples to set before the multitude. And they did eat, and were all filled. And there was taken up of fragments that remained to them, twelve baskets. Burkett notes, This miracle of our Savior's feeding five thousand with five loaves and two fishes is recorded by all the evangelists, and in the history of it we have these observable particulars. 1. The seasonable expression of the disciples' pity towards the multitude, who had long fasted and wanted now the ordinary comforts and support of life. It well becomes the ministers of Christ to have respect to the bodily wants as well as to the spiritual necessities of their people. Observe, too, the motion which the disciples make to Christ on behalf of the multitude. Send them away, that they may go into the towns and country and get fiddles. Here was a strong charity, but a weak faith. A strong charity in desiring the people's relief, but a weak faith in supposing that they could no other way be relieved but by sending them away. Forgetting that Christ, who had healed the multitude miraculously, could also feed them miraculously whenever he pleased, all things being equally easy to an almighty power. Observe 3. Our Savior's strange reply to the disciples' request. They need not depart. Give ye them to eat. Need not depart. Why? The people must either feed or famish. Vittles they must have, and a dry desert will afford none. Yet says Christ to his disciples, Give ye them to eat. Alas, poor disciples, they had nothing for themselves to eat. How should they then give the multitude to eat? When Christ requires of us what we of ourselves are unable to perform, it is to discover to us our own impotency and weakness, to provoke us to look up to him and to depend by faith on his almighty power. Observe 4. What a poor and slender provision the Lord of the whole earth has for himself and his family. Five barley loaves and two fishes, teaching us that these bodies of ours must be fed, but not pampered. Our bellies must not be our master, much less our God. The end of food is sustained nature. We must not stifle her with a gluttonous variety. And as the quality of the victuals was plain, so the quantity of it was small, five loaves and two fishes. Well might the disciples say, what are they among so many? The eye of sense and reason sees an utter impossibility of those effects which faith can easily apprehend, and a divine power more easily produce. Observe 5. How Christ, the great master of the feast, doth marshal his guests. He commands them all to sit down by fifties in a company. None of them reply, sit down, but to what? Here are the mouths, but where's the meat? We may soon be set, but when shall we be served? Not a word like this, but they obey and expect. Lord, how easy it is to trust thy providence and rely upon thy power when there is corn in the barn, bread in the cupboard, money in the purse. But when our stores are empty, when we have nothing in hand, then to depend upon an invisible bounty is a notable act of faith indeed. Observe 6. The actions performed by our blessed Savior. He blessed and brake and gave the loaves to his disciples and they to the multitude. 1. He blessed them, teaching us by his example never to use or receive the good creatures of God without prayer and praise, never to sit down to our food as a beast to his fodder. 2. Christ break the loaves. He could have multiplied them whole. Why then would he rather do it in the breaking? 
perhaps to teach us that we may rather expect his blessing in the distribution of his bounty than in the reservation of it. Scattering is the way to increasing. Liberality is the way to riches. 3. Christ gave the loaves thus broken to the disciples that they might distribute to the multitude. But why did Christ distribute by the disciples' hands? Doubtless to gain respect to his disciples from the people, and the same course that our Lord take in spiritual distribution. He that could feed the world by his own immediate hand chooses rather by the hand of his ministers to divide the bread of life amongst his people. Observe 7. The certainty and greatness of this miracle. They did all eat and were filled. They did all eat, not a crumb or a bit, but a satiety and fullness. All that were hungry did eat, and all that ate were satisfied. And yet twelve baskets of fragments remain. More is left than was at first set on. Tis hard to say which is the greatest miracle, the miraculous eating or the miraculous leaving. If we consider what they left, we may wonder that they ate anything. If what they ate, that they left anything. Observe lastly, these fragments, though of barley loaves and fish bones, must not be lost, but at our Savior's command gathered up. The great housekeeper of the world will not allow the loss of his orts. Lord, how tremendous will their accounts be, who, having large and plentiful estates, do consume them upon their lusts. How will they wish they had been born to poverty and want when they appear to make up their accounts before God? Verses 18 to 22. And it came to pass, as he was alone praying, his disciples were with him, and he asked them, saying, Whom say the people that I am? They answering said, John the Baptist, but some say, Elijah, and others say that one of the old prophets is risen again. He said unto them, But who say ye that I am? Peter answering said, The Christ of God. And he straightly charged them, and commanded them to tell no man that thing, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be slain, and be raised the third day. Burkett notes, these verses relate to us a private conference which our Savior had with his disciples, touching their own and others' opinions concerning himself, where observe, one, our Savior's inquiry, what the generality of the people thought and said of him, whom do men say that I am? Not as if Christ were ignorant, or did vaingloriously inquire after the opinion of the multitude, but his intention and design was to settle and more firmly establish his disciples in the belief of his being the true and promised Messiah. The disciples tell him some took him to be John the Baptist, some Elijah, some one of the prophets. Tis no new thing, it seems, to find diversity of judgments and opinions concerning Christ in the affairs of his kingdom. Observe, too. Peter, as the mouth of all the apostles, and in their names, makes a full and open profession of Christ, acknowledging him to be the true and promised Messiah. Thou art the Christ of God. Learn thence that the veil of Christ's human nature did not keep the eyes of his disciples' faith from discerning him to be truly and really God. Thou art the Christ of God. Observe 3. The charge and special injunction given by Christ to tell no man of him that is, not commonly to publish, and openly to declare him to be the Son of God, because being in his state of humiliation, the glory of his divinity was to be concealed till his resurrection. He was then declared to be the Son of God with power. Romans 1.4 Observe, lastly, 
the great wisdom of our Savior in acquainting his disciples with the near approach of his death and sufferings. The Son of Man must suffer many things, etc. This our Savior did, one, to prevent the scandal and offense which otherwise they would have taken at his suffering. Two, the better to fit and prepare them to bear that great trial when it did come. Three, to correct the error which they had entertained concerning the temporal kingdom of the Messiah, and that he was to be a great and mighty prince here upon earth. For these reasons did Christ frequently acquaint his disciples with his sufferings. Verses 23 and 24. And he said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. Burkett notes. Observe here, one, how our Savior recommends his religion to every person's election and choice, not compelling anyone by force or violence to embrace or entertain it, if any man will be my disciple. That is, if any man chooses and resolves to be a Christian. Observe, too, our Savior's terms propounded, namely, self-denial, gospel suffering, and gospel service. 1. Self-denial. Let him deny himself by which we are not to understand either the denying of our senses in matter of faith or the renouncing of our reasons in matters of religion, but a willingness to part with all our earthly comforts and temporal enjoyments for the sake of Christ when called thereunto. They to whom we bear the greatest natural affection, even the wife of our bosom and the offspring of our bowels, and those to whom we yield the highest reverence and to whose commands we owe most entire obedience as our fathers and mothers, If the authority of natural, civil, or ecclesiastical superiors should combine to tempt us to do what Christ forbids, yet Christ must be loved more than these, and obeyed before all these, yea, all these must be comparatively hated in respect of him. Farther, this precept requires us to deny our honor and reputation, our wealth and outward estate, our whole subsistence, and all our temporal good things, even life itself when the interest of Christ in religion calls for it. Otherwise, we cannot be his disciples. 2. Gospel suffering. He must take up his cross daily, an allusion to a Roman custom. When a malefactor was to be crucified, he took his cross upon his shoulder and carried it to the place of execution. Here note that not the taking of the cross, but patient bearing of it, when God has made it and laid it upon our shoulder, is the duty enjoined. Let him take up his cross. 3. Gospel service. Let him follow me, says Christ. That is, obey my commands and imitate my example. He must set my life and doctrine continually before him and be daily correcting and reforming of his life by that rule and pattern. Observe 3. The arguments urged by our Savior to induce men to a willingness to lay down their lives for the sake of Christ and his holy religion. He that will save his life shall lose it and he that is willing to lose his life for the sake of the gospel shall find it, imitating to us, one, that the love of this temporal life is a great temptation to men to deny Christ and to renounce his holy religion, two, that the surest way to attain eternal life is cheerfully to lay down our temporal life when the glory of Christ and the honor of religion require it at our hands. Verse 25. For what is a man advantaged? if he gain the whole world and lose himself, or be cast away. Burkett notes, 
Here our Savior goes on to show the folly of those that for saving their temporal lives will expose their eternal life, or the life of their soul, to hazard and danger. Yea, sometimes by refusing to lay down our temporal life for Christ, we lose that also, which renders it the greatest folly in the world to refuse to part with any enjoyment, even life itself, at the call and command of Christ. Verse 26. For whoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed, when he shall come in his own glory, and in his Father's, and of the holy angels. Burkett notes, That is, whosoever shall deny and disown me, either in my person, in my doctrine, or my members, or by any fear or favor of man, he shall with shame be disowned by me and rejected of me at the great day. There are two passions which cause men to disown Christ in the day of temptation, namely fear and shame. Many good men have been overcome by the former, as St. Peter and the others, but we do not find any good men in Scripture guilty of the latter, namely that denied Christ out of shame. This argues a rotten, unsound, and corrupt heart. If any man think it beneath his honor and quality to own the opposed truth and despise members of Christ, Christ will think it beneath him to own such persons at the great day. Learn hence, one, that such as are ashamed of Christ's doctrine or members are in God's account ashamed of Christ himself. Two, that such as either for fear dare not or for shame will not own the doctrine and members of Christ now shall certainly find Christ ashamed to own and confess them at the great day. Verse 27. But I tell you of a truth, there be some standing here which will not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God. Burkett notes, there is a threefold sense and interpretation of these words given by expositors. One, some refer the words to the times of the gospel after Christ's resurrection and ascension, when the gospel was propagated far and near, and the kingdom of God came with power. Learn thence that where the gospel is powerfully preached and cheerfully obeyed, there Christ cometh most gloriously in his kingdom. Two, others understand these words of Christ's coming and exercising his kingly power in the destruction of Jerusalem, which some of the apostles then standing by lived to see. Three, others, as most agreeable to the context, understand the words with reference to our Savior's transfiguration. As if he had said, Some of you, meaning Peter, James, and John, shall shortly see me upon Mount Tabor, and that in such splendor and glory as shall be a prelidium, a shadow and representation of that glory which I shall appear in when I shall come with power to judge the world at the great day. And whereas our Savior saith not, There are some standing here which shall not die, but which shall not taste of death till they have seen this glorious sight. This implies two things. One, that after they'd seen this transfiguration, they must taste of death as well as others. Two, that they should but taste of it and no more. From whence we learn, one, that the most renowned servants of Christ for faith, holiness, and service must at length, in God's appointed time, taste and have experience of death as well as others. Three, that although they must taste, yet they shall but taste of death. They shall not drink the dregs of that bitter cup. They shall fall by the hand of death, yet shall not be hurt by it, but in the very fall be victorious over it.